Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Giant Brain Lecture Theatre. I'm Ian McAllister, and I'll be your interviewer tonight. My guest tonight has had a very career, poet, writer, podcaster, writing course designer and teacher, tabletop critic and podcaster. I've had a lot of fun doing one of his writing courses, and his podcast, Death of a Thousand Cuts, is a great insight into the world of writers and writing. Having previously written two works of fiction in The Honours and The Ice House, my guest has recently turned his attention to the world of non-fiction and the subject of anxiety. His most recent work is called Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It. To talk about that and his love of the tabletop hobby, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Clare to the Giant Brain HQ. How are you doing, Tim? I'm really well, Ian. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? I am good. Yeah, a little hot. Like I've had to close the close the windows to my study and sitting beside a computer outputting heat, so I may melt to pieces during this interview. But other than that, I'm good. It's very warm. I'm sure it's quite warm with you as well. Yeah, yeah, it's super sweltering. It doesn't. So it doesn't. Yeah, it, just in that kind of period where we want the evening to to draw in slightly. So it's like can yeah. Game outside, like it's definitely muggy in a way that isn't necessarily conducive in the same way as as the winter is to playing games. Yeah, I was uh, I was leaving that uh, role playing session last night about half ten, and I was like, "Oh, this is just nice. It was just just nice and cool, still light. It's like this is nice. I could go and play some more games. Great, but I have to sleep instead." <laughs> so uh, you've recently been to UK Games Expo, Tim. How did that go? Yeah, I mean, I so I only went. My, I went to my first ever UK Games Expo, and actually, my first ever games convention in twenty twenty one. That was my first one, and right. so I, I really went through a kind of very. It's only been recently that I've gone to them at all, and then so twenty twenty three was my my third, which has come around really quickly. It feels like, and. I, don't know, I had a few friends who couldn't make it. And so they were like, Do you, can you tell me what it was like? What, what was it like? And my, my honest answer was, do you want, what do you value more? The quality of honesty or the quality of like protecting the feelings of your friends? Because the truth was I had an amazing time, but I was aware. <laughs> and I know you didn't go either. No, I'm sort I was super aware that, I mean, maybe, I mean, it might not have been an intrinsically brilliant event. It might just be I was very lucky to hit all the high notes of it. But um, I had an amazing time. I think it was my favourite convention experience that I've had so far. As much as, I, you know, I went to Aircon earlier this year, really loved it, really loved the atmosphere there. I think it's a terrific convention. Yeah, but, I was at that um, myself and loved it. Loved Aircon. Yeah, hoping to go back next it's, year. It's really, it's really nice, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I think like I was in, a, I was in a period of like I'd had the flu two weeks before, and I still had like post-viral fatigue, and so I was really just dragging myself through Aircon, as lovely as it was. I was so tired, and I, but I, you know, I went to UK Games Expert, and it was wicked. It was really good, and I bump into people now tim would you like to play a game i'm like yes and so i've gone from being this very very shy guy kind of like creeping around the expo going back to my room early to just playing loads of games from the moment i got in there seeing stuff from all these different publishers and best of them just meeting like never met before and getting to sit there play games with them and it was just everything you could ask for in a expo experience really 
Yeah, I, I do. I do miss it. I haven't been. I didn't go during the sort of like when they came back during the pandemic period, and I'm booked in for hotels next year. So I'll definitely wow. Yeah, can't can't wait to go because yeah, well, you got to otherwise it's <laughs> it's very expensive very quickly. So yeah, I've already booked in for next year. So hoping to go back. Were there any uh, sort of particular experiences or games that stood out for you? I mean, like UK Games Expo falls in a very weird point in the publisher's release calendar uh, mm. because it's you know there's gen con and there's essen and it's it's rare that a publisher thinks oh you know what where we want to do our big launch our big push we'll do that at uk games expo when you've got those other two events sort of sitting athwart it and yeah. i think it suffers for that as being a sort of like big release, big buzz kind of event. But that does mean you can kind of just do your own thing with it and not be pulled. Because I found Essen really tiring for that buzz chasing. You've got to go and find this game and play this. Like the just the relentless march of playtesting really was, you know, you, I had to, playtest to see everything in essence to get around it yeah i had to from the moment i got there book stuff and be marching from playtest to playtest but having said all that uh, there were a few things that i liked there was a lot of like small box stuff that i really enjoyed and i know everyone gets to a point in their board gaming life where they start going oh i really feel there's a lot of small box tight little box titles that are real a boosting quality of those i think that's probably just to do with space considerations and sometimes getting older and having like limited time yeah so it may be that but i i really i mean i played they so um pandasaurus launched uh a beacon patrol so oh, yeah that was that was launched at uk games expo and um it's a, a for those people who haven't seen it it's a small box tile lane game that's about you know you're just going you're you're patrolling the nordic coast checking that all the automatic uh all the all, all the automatic lighthouses are working checking that the boys are working that's it really you're not even map it, the game doesn't even pretend you're mapping the coast and the islands right. has already been done you're just checking sure. that the that things work so it's it sort of seems on the surface it's a co-op game, Tarlang, super gentle it seems, and yet I, and I was like, when I read the rule book, it's very small. And I must admit, I was quietly I quietly rolled my eyes. I was, like, oh, <laughs> I was like, oh come on, all right, all right then. We've all we've all we've all, we've all played Dorf Romantic. I get it, I get it, and actually, yeah. it is. It's a really surprisingly sort of crunchy little co-op game with cool. the, the mechanic of swapping tiles feels really good. It feels like you're genuinely uh, cooperative. We really quickly were like, oh, this is game's difficult. Like everyone, we were all a bit like, this is, this is a bit patronizing, actually. We're going we're gonna to breeze through this because the rules are so simple. Yeah. Actually doing well. Because you, you can only place depending on where your boats are and you're trying to maximise your score. And you very quickly realise that you've come slightly unglued. <laughs> you've been too cocky. And, and, and it went, I think it's a great sign of the game when we went from 
sort of scornful, oh, well, let's just poodle around with our boats and do this too. Wait, 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 don't do anything for a second. And it was genu- it feels genuinely cooperative. You can swap tiles with other players, and so it, it feels dynamic. I like it a lot. I think it's a great title. Um, i tell you what, I played the role and write of uh, Walking in Burano. I don't know if you've seen the uh, I, game. I vaguely know of it, but yeah, I've never played it myself. Um, yeah, and... Uh, I mean, it looks beautiful, right? It's a beautiful theme, these kind of like uh, Venetian... Uh, that is Venice-ish, isn't it? I, my sense yeah. of geography is poor, but all these canals, beautiful coloured coloured houses, and they've done a roll and write version of it. And oh, it was just it was just really, really up my street. It was it's beautiful. Um, it's just like a really crunchy roll and write. Again, looks gorgeous, looks cosy, is actually a kind of living hell that slowly gets worse <laughs> as the game goes on, right? Um, but I, love, I, love when, I love when gentle games re- reveal themselves to be absolutely mean, horrible things. Like Azul's one of my favourite games that looks like <sighs> gen- gentle and nice and it's just the meanest thing, Azul. I mean, yeah, you do the first round of Azul and you're like, on your first play of it, you're like, well, this is too easy. This is almost insulting. And then you, and then you go, oh no. Oh yeah, I've made a I've made a rod for my own back here. Wait a minute, wait a minute, and and that's yeah, and it's got it's got that lovely feeling, and it's got some really interesting like targets that you're going for in the game. Sure, and I just think it, I just think it's smart. Like you know, I'm I I'm not you know, roll and rights aren't my main category of game, but I really enjoy that. And the game that I was going around the whole of UK Games Expo, going, you've got to play this. They had two copies of it. This is uh, 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 my Deus Games, a kind of publisher who does lots of sort of Southeast Asian Chinese games. All right, cool. Um, Jiraku, uh, I don't know. It's like a trick taker, two to four players set just before the uh, Warring States period in Japan. It's got. It's a trick taking game and an area control game over three rounds. It is sensationally good so tight so beautiful i showed it to a few people i said do you want to just try this it'll take under an hour to play everyone i played with immediately went where can i get a copy there was a scramble um, my day sold all their copies and someone ended up buying their display copy um <laughs> it is it is it, it got it's a game that got stuffed because it came out during the pandemic and kind of missed its kind of slot in stores. It didn't really yeah. have a particularly it, it it didn't kind of come alive and it was not a game made for Kickstarter. But my goodness, it's a hidden gem. Absolutely, just there's nothing brand new in it, but all the mechanics just slot together into this experience that everyone has. It's one of those games that people play three round a couple of hands and then they look up and go, I can I can I can tell this is gonna be this yeah. is gonna be actually quite good. This is yeah, gonna be quite yeah. good. Let's let's just uh, do that again. <laughs> people, people people were, you know, sometimes going on their phone halfway through the game to see if they could get a copy. It, it's that much of a where people start panicking slightly. What if I can't get hold of this? It's it's um it's a real ah oh, it's brilliant. So yeah, that was that was my game, even though it didn't come out. Yeah, then right. I'd seen it at Essen and they'd sold the copies there. But it's I, I think it's superb and a really underrated game. And I hope my Deus kind of feels this buzz that I'm trying to you know be, be this kind of one man army for it. And 
cool. do another reprint. Nice. Yeah, I mean, like with Expo and with all conventions, it's it's so much about the experiences you get as well. Like, it's not necessarily the game that gets released there that you like buzz about. I I have I have extremely fond memories of early. Oh, when it must have been like 2015, 2016 Expo when they had uh, a a bar bus in the street food bit and sitting on top of it as the sunset with my friends just playing skull and having a beer or two. And that was just great. It was, it was just it was just wonderful just sitting chatting and relaxing and just yeah. And it was just yeah, skulls. It's, <laughs> it's just yeah. Great. I, I think well that's yeah. It's a lovely place for we played. Uh, a, a, someone brought out a copy of a game called Festival of a Thousand Cats which is like, again, it's another trick taker, uh, about games. Around, like, yeah. yeah. About it's like, but it, but it's from a few years ago. Oh, so it's not a new game, but someone brought it to the table and it, and it's, and it's, it was terrific. We were all like, how is this past us by? And it's like, yeah, cause it turns out that the kind of like buzz around games and are, we're still, you know, in a community that how games, the kind of word of mouth system is, is not infallible. And yeah. um, although some games have done like terrifically well through that and really word has mm-hmm. got around, there are always ones that slip through the cracks. And that's what I find exciting is that there'll always be people in the gaming halls just kind of going around almost sort of doing unpaid PR, almost being like missionaries yeah. with these unloved games. And they're often quite quick games. The reason that they end up being short ones is because those are the kind of things that you can get away with playing at a con. I mean, I got roped into yeah. a game of Terraforming Mars with all the expansions at one point. And wow. it was a mistake. It was a mistake <laughs> to step in, but I walked past and someone just went, are you Tim? And I was like, um, yeah. Are you Tim Clare? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, do you want to play Terraforming Mars? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I do. I still have questions about how how you know me and what's going on, but I, I, I stepped in and played it. And I, I, I mean, I love it, but it's not, a, it's in no way a good game to play. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you want to get anything done. But um, yeah, so yeah, I, I love I love that aspect of it. I love playing with people I wouldn't normally. I yeah. love, I had lots of people introduce me to games I wouldn't have normally played. And some of them were like ones that are out of print. You know, the kind of things you don't get to see in reviews as well, because, yeah. you know, for obvious reasons, review channels don't tend to say, oh, here's a game that you can't get anymore <laughs> that came out a long time ago and is unavailable. So if if we say we like this, that's going to do you no good at all. You're only going to be, you're going to be the ghost at the feast. You're going to be a small Victorian child kind of with your nose pressed to the window, watching the family eat a kind of delicious Christmas roast dinner, but you won't be able to play. But but people don't care about that uh, <laughs> at the con. They'll just go play this because I love it and I I really enjoy that. Awesome. So I'd like to step away from the world of tabletop gaming for a little bit because I I first came across you through your writing course bootcamp, which I really enjoyed doing. Do you think that there are sort of like writing skills that translate to the world of sort of tabletop game design and criticism for yourself and myself that folk would find useful? Yeah, I think that I think they're definitely I think they definitely are. I mean, there's some very very obvious ones, and the most direct ones are to do with people who are writing. You know, I've had people on the show. I've interviewed like, tabletop role playing game writers and designers. People like uh, Grant Howitt. I spoke to Chris Farnell, who's written scenarios yep. for Spire. Um, I've, I've spoken to people who've written, you know, stuff for Pathfinder. I just had James L. Sutter actually on the 
show who uh, I, I listened to your stuff. one with um, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan as well he's yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah and he, yeah, he talked about some really really interesting RPGs you know like his like the Dracula one they did yeah yeah there's all sorts of marginalia and, and, and Dracula is mm. conceived of as this kind of like document that you're picking apart to try and hunt down it's like yeah, Dracula as a series of clues. So, Dracula dossiers or something like that's called yeah yeah, yeah. So, so there's those things where it's like that ability to uh, capture people's imaginations. And there's lots of narrative-driven games where that ability to set a scene with a few words or just, I think, think about what is a compelling and interesting story. Like games throughout history and even the most abstract games, not the most abstract games, but most of games that even we think of as abstract have quite a good, I mean, a, a great example is, is Santorini as a game that is an abstract and yet has done an amazing job of making itself feel thematic and taking all these kind of like gods and myths and, put, and, and, and then going, how would that exist within a game? But like, I, I think like fundamentally, in answer to your question, um, I, I, I thought we did years ago. We tried to join this French experimental literature group called the Oulipo, the Ouvre de Literature Potentiel, kind of as a, a joke, right? They're like this famously obscure uh, French group that sprung up in the 1960s and 70s that did all these like games with language where they, like, uh, a guy called Georges Perec wrote a novel called La Disparation, which after it had been released, people noticed that it didn't contain the letter E anywhere. And quite a lot of, quite a lot of critics didn't notice when it first came out. And there was an angry backlash, like, this is, horrib- this is horribly pretentious. But <laughs> it was actually, he, 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 he's written, he wrote several novels, including Life, a User's Manual, which is an incredibly interesting novel. And they've got all these restrictions, these like, and often quite silly ones, if you sort of describe them. Uh, but it's they, they're also often really funny as well and really interesting. And the Ulipo the, the, the were interested in putting res- arbitrary restrictions on language to create poetry, to create stories, to create whatever, with this okay. idea that it was a reaction against surrealism. And the idea was that surrealists were saying, we're going to make ourselves free by saying we can talk about anything. We can be really weird. And they were like, no, no, you're just falling into cliches and habits you don't realize you've got one of the things about putting an arbitrary limit on something by giving yourself these restrictions that you don't need to face up to is that you'll force yourself out of your normal habits and you'll start creating things you didn't expect and i think that is where poetry and stories and games intersect it's kind of like what bernard suits who's a kind of games theorist from I think he was writing in the 1970s originally, but he talked about games. His kind of summary of what a game is was that it's it's you 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 set yourself some like unnecessary challenge. <laughs> it doesn't have to be done, and then you kind of move sure. through it. And I think that's the same as a story. That's the same as a yeah. poem. You know, the, the, we're setting ourselves arbitrary hoops to sort of jump through and dance through to force. We us, ourselves out of old habits and into i mean the things that we do round the table when we're given a board game 
but it's like okay you've got to you know the simplest board game would be like you've got to get your piece from one side to the other ah but you can yeah. only move sideways you can only move one space per turn as soon as you start limiting powers as soon as you start making making it weird and difficult that's where the game springs out of it that's where ingenuity that's why the, the kind of like most ridiculously elaborate role-playing game scenarios where the party come up with these like ludicrous these ludicrous schemes to get round some problem that are hilarious and creative they exist because yeah. of those restrictions and mm. i think that's true of all games you think of something like the crew right yeah this game that has this fundamental restriction if you don't talk you've got something that you can signal with but it's this cooperative card game where you can't talk now if you didn't have that restriction it would be a really boring game but that yeah. restriction suddenly forces sometimes dramatic sometimes it's just like really funny sometimes you just like you smash the whole thing into a wall and it's really funny and i think that's the same as writing a poem you know that's when you're not allowed when you you know a, a limerick it's such a stupid format to write. Like a haiku is like, why do we only use five, seven, five? And you've got to have, you've got to mention the season somewhere. There's got to be a season word in there. Yeah. Why? Well, because it's going to force you out of the obvious into these really, really interesting. It was, it's actually, it was Jay Z in his book Decoded who get, came up with the best definition of poetry that I ever read. Well, I was so relieved when I read it. I was like oh my gosh, we can go home. I'll just I can phone <laughs> English departments up and down the land and go, go home, have a cup of tea and a chocolate hobnob. Because he just said a poet, a poem makes words work harder than they usually do. Lovely. And that's it. Right? And I'm Love just it. like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And I think um, in the same way, I think games uh, make human agency work harder than normally do they games make our brains work harder than they normally do it's like you've got to get this boat from one side to the other but i'm going to stick a load of crocodiles in the water the other players play <laughs> yeah. the crocodiles. that becomes interesting in a way that just piloting a boat from one side of a river to the other isn't so that's what i'd say all of it comes down to is the fact that you're giving yourself some restriction and novel's only interesting because we go, we're going to follow this character and I'm not going to tell all of human history. I'm just going to talk about them. Yeah. And I'm also going to, they've got to go here. This character's just got to get a small piece of jewellery from their home to a mountain. Ah, but anyone <laughs> holding it is going to start turning them evil and everyone wants to kill them. That sounds terrible, yeah, right? No one's ever going to yeah, read yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I know. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work, right? <laughs> Fantastic. No, I, I, lo I love that. Oh, there's some great definitions in there. I love it. Especially the Jay-Z one about poetry. Just fantastic. It's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's no. great. So um, you've done some reviewing for Tabletop Game Magazine and your former editor, Chris, is in the audience. Hey, Chris. What do you think of the current state of board game criticism in the hobby? So I, I I feel myself kind of grinning because I want to say something sort of cheeky, but it would be it would be a joke. Oh, go ahead. Um, I, I only, no, 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 I don't because I'm I'm trying to like I, I I just kind of want to suddenly 
round and go, I think, keep it very quiet. But I don't feel like that at all. I mean, I feel that it is certainly, hopefully, a growth area that hasn't quite kind of come into its... Uh, I think we've had it gone through a kind of like golden era of board games. I think that is sort of yeah. so true that it seems like a cliche, but it sort of bears repeating that if you look at the whole human history of games, I, I, I feel like we are going through a period of unparalleled innovation and production of games and people talking yeah. about game design as something that is a kind of like almost like is a kind of calling and you can be an auteur and a single person can design a game rather than games just being kind of folk games that get tweaked but are inherited yeah we've never been through this period so i i think i'd be so you know i'm so careful about not making silly ahistorical claims like that but i just cannot think in the history of games much of which we actually don't know about because it's been erased because people didn't write them down because they didn't think they were important. But except when they were banning them, that's why like, one <laughs> of our earliest lists of games is the Buddha's list of games that monks shouldn't play. Where they've got like an early, clearly an early version of Pictionary, right? It's like you're dipping your finger in to die and then saying, what, should, what? And then people are going, what are you drawing? And it's like, oh, it's an elephant. Like, it's an, uh, we know, know that those games were played because. They, there was like suppression of them, right? But wow, um, we've never had anything like this before in terms of the number of people creating games and talking about how to make the best game and releasing and innovating. And I think, so I think we're in a, a kind of, we've been through a massive period of growth and there are amazing games and I'm just so thrilled to be part of it, but I'm not sure that our language for talking about games has caught up with that. I agree with that. Yeah. And that is not to in any way disparage people writing about it. Because I think of myself as That's very, <laughs> very much... A, 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 well, I think of myself as like very, very much like on the lowest rung of kind of learning about how to write about games and figuring out what I want to say and, 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 and really sort of like looking up to my other peers around it uh, for direction. So I'm not in any way... Uh, don't mean it like that, but I, I just think we've yet to have like big... I, 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 you know, I've str struggled to think of sort of big books that have come out of, that have been sort of defining books about how to think about games and how to play in the way that we have, you know, E.M. Forster's aspects of the novel, those lectures, in the way that we have like the Lord Dun Dunsany uh, lectures about language, in the way that we've got some kind of like big theoretical books about literature sure. or people... Or, 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 you know, big movements in movie criticism that have helped us frame and understand it. I think in, with games, we have lots of consumer reviews, and that's really cool, and it's really useful. And we've got a load of digital media that's doing really interesting things and lots of really great video. And By people, consumer review, you mean the sort of like, just like, should you buy it or should you not kind of review? Yeah which, which, yeah, which is, you know, which is, I, I, I think speaks to the fact, I mean, you don't get consumer reviews around poetry, and that's because there's a tiny, there's a shrinkingly small consumer base. I think it's a sign that games are in a healthy state, yeah. but there's just some people uh, helping to sort of help people pick. I'm, I'm not disparaging that at no, all. No, you no, can no, definitely no. have a, 
poetry has gone through, is, is in, you know, it's experienced a crisis of overproduction and underconsumption where loads of people want to write it. Very few people want to be purely readers. Whereas board yeah. games are in a position where most people who consume them are in it because they want to play. And then there's yeah. some people who design who are probably players as well, but it's not like everybody who plays games. It really isn't that everybody who plays games yeah. wants to be a game designer. So we, we've got a very healthy uh, mix of supply and demand, but I just would love to see, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to mention something that kind of Chris said in a, uh, a, a, a talk, a panel that they did at UK Games Expo uh, this year, where, you know, he's talking about the kind of like highest form of a board game review is the one where you, you kind of like get across the experience of what it was like to play the game, you know, not yeah. just the list of components, not just the mechanics, which I find all of that stuff super useful. If someone can say, like, a, it's kind of like, a, you know, I described Jiraku to you, I immediately went to, it's a trick taker, it's got area control, yeah. it's kind of midway, it will take play in under an hour. I gave you, like, the, 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 the mechanics of it and the descriptors to help you place that. I, I use that all the time. Sure. But it's that ability to, like, figure out and start interrogating why we play games. Mm. And, and also bring into this world of the hobby is a very tiny work part of the overall player base of people who play card games and board games around the world. And I would yeah. love to see more joining up of, yeah. of that in a way that they, you know, they used to be very hard walls between the war, the simulationist war gamers and then people and then and then card players and family players and i think those you know that you can still make those distinctions but i do think there's more uh transport between those worlds yeah. now there's more games that have just been difficult to de to decipher which, the, which side they land on right where they land in right in the dmz between two genres and both groups kind of like go and go what's this thing that's landed in between our two camps in this no man's land and then they both meet each other at the table i'd like to see more of that so i i i would just like to see more of it and i think in in the way that with video game reviews we've got a series of like really great video game ess essayists now on 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 youtube um people you know like uh well, there's, I mean, there's too many to name, but I suppose like Jacob Geller is like a really great example of someone who makes really, and, and actually even in board games now, and we're starting to see like channels like Ristic Studies who do just mainly the focus is on like the art of magic cards, like Ooh. the artwork, but it will, you know, he talks about very human incidents. He kind of like talks about kind of classical paintings, but also there's essays about, like the values of cards in collectible card games and what it means to use physical cards that kind of get bent and tweaked and how we should relate to that and sleeving cards. And, and, and it just gets very close to the heart of why we play. And yeah. I, I would just, I, I think that's what I'd like to see. And I, I sort of do feel rising up is that ability for us to sit down and kind of go, <laughs> 
what you know cool like this game is 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 brilliant and you've said we need to come and play this i love that but i love i love stuff that reminds me or helps me understand why i'm sitting around my table playing with friends because something very profound i think about about playing games not in a way to sort of valorize it or for us to get all hand ringy because <laughs> we need an al- we need an alibi for doing something that historically has been seen as like not only frivolous but like <laughs> like used like has been like actively legally suppressed and as seen yeah. as like this moral ill I would love, you know, I think when you choose to spend your, your parts of your life sitting around a table with friends, I think there's something kind of beautiful and profound about that. And it's okay to take that seriously. And we don't yeah. have to like come up with chin stroking justifications for it. But I would love to explore that because I think it's as just as a legitimate part of our humanity as theatre, as literature. Uh, and I think it's just as a legitimate part of the arts, you know, and I'd love to, I, I'd love to see more people exploring that because I, I find it fascinating. Fascinating. I, I could also talk to you for hours about that kind of thing. Cause I find it fascinating myself. The sort of like why we play. I mean, I've had the same gaming Well, I've had a gaming group on a Wednesday for must be going on close to two decades now or thereabouts. Wow, pretty much, and not all, not quite the same group, but pretty close. Like there've been some changes here and there. Like people have like obviously left Edinburgh and gone elsewhere, and people have come in. But yeah, pretty much been doing that on a Wednesday for it must be close to two decades now. And just wow. yeah, and it's just just that connection with friends at the table. It's great, but yeah, I agree. Like we should talk more about like why we play, like the sort of like the sort of social aspects of play and that kind of thing as well, as well as just the actual. The words we used to like talk about games and like that, that, that I think game criticism is still very young. We're we're still we're still sort of trying, like you say, we're still trying to sort of find our feet as to as to how to talk about games properly and how to how to actually get into there and like sort of talk about why we play and why they're why they're cool and like show other people why they're cool because that grows the hobby and that's great. But let's take a break from that for a moment. And talk about something else. I could go on and on about that for hours, but I will not. Um, so one of the motivators for inviting you on the cast was your recent book about anxiety coming out in paperback. Um, can you tell us about your own relationship with anxiety and what drove you to write a book about your experience? Yeah, so, I mean, I... For years, I sort of didn't really acknowledge that I was an anxious person, which is ridic- would be sort of seem ridiculous if... Uh, either even if you'd like known me but also you know from what i was because i was having panic attacks every week and sometimes not just every day but for multiple consecutive days multiple times a day and anyone who's sort of had a panic attack it's you know it's uh you know like i was you know you're flawed you 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 know i'll be I'd be completely in terror, just like pouring sweat, sometimes like screaming in terror, in fear. Um, You know, the incredibly irrational thing that when it's not going on, you think, why would I, that was weird. Like, I know not to be terrified when I'm in my own, you know, when I'm in this room now, I know not to be terrified. And yet I was, and I was, you know, I was a worrier, I think sometimes when you say, you know, suffer from anxiety, people imagine you're sort of just a, a worrier. But actually, I was also really struggled 
with like deep anxiety and fear and it would as soon as and think well i'm just going through a stressful period at work next week it's going to change because yeah. i'll have got that thing out of the way which i think everyone you get to a certain point in adulthood and you realize the thing that you're sort of like just we're just going to get this next week out of the way and then it's going to be fine like that never comes right and, yeah. and um i just realized that i wasn't coping and then i became a dad and um, I, it, it, it just kind of got to a, a head where I suppose like, you know, you have this big build up to this new person coming into your life. And so you've got a reason to feel anxious when that's happening. You go, well, of course, I'm, of course I'm feeling anxious. But then it's happened and the anxiety hasn't gone away. And I was like, I've got to do something. And so I sort of decided that I was going to, and at the same time, I was doing my podcast, right? And I'd been speaking to, I just, I'd got into interest in kind of like neuroscience and getting people on to talk about like the neuroscience of like literature. Like I, I got a neuroscientist on called Martin Lotzer and I talked to him about him doing studies where they'd like uh, put writers in fMRIs and they'd seen what parts of the brain were activated during creative writing process. And I was Amazing. like, yeah, and, I, and there's another guy um, that I spoke to who like did like the neuroscience of creativity and had done lots of studies on what part of the brains are active. And really, really interesting. I was just like, oh, these people are willing to talk to me. Maybe I could just sort of, if I was writing a book, I'd actually, it would sort of open a few doors. So it seems like a very sort of, I suppose it seems like maybe, I don't know if it sounds pragmatic or, cyn- or cynical, but I just thought if I tell people I'm writing a book, I think these academics will talk to me. And I thought maybe I can, I've read all these articles about how we're just on this cusp of this new breakthrough in anxiety research. We're just on this breakthrough of like, this is the, you know, scientists you'd read, you know, especially if you're known to be anxious, lots of people will send you articles about things like saying this yeah. could be this new breakthrough. They think that they found the brain's fear center or whatever. And, I, and so I thought if I'm writing a book, it'll give me an excuse to like, speak to loads of experts and then I'll just put into practice whatever they tell me and I'll work at it for a year. Um, and I'll just go absolutely full out this whole year. I will just try to be, to, to beat my anxiety and do everything I can. And so that was the kind of genesis of the book really was, but I want to stress, like it wasn't, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a kind of a goofy quest. No, I was really clinging on by my fingertips. I think like an, in a way that you can't, pitch the book to your publishers going look guys i'm re- i'm actually mentally ill and i need this to work <laughs> like they would be really worried so you have to kind of yeah. be like oh i think this is a real sort of there's a real public need for this but obviously like my personal motivation was i wanted to not be suffering all the time and i wanted yeah, to be able to get through a day like i wanted to be able to feel like i could leave the house which is like what this can feel like, you know, when you're having panic attacks all the time, feel like you can't drive, can't be in public. I mean, it's very debilitating. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how it sort of started. And then, you know, I just went from there and started hammering out emails to people. I, I actually, I tell you what, I didn't, don't mention this. I mean, I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but like it actually, one of the earliest things that happened was I was at Latitude Festival and, and, um, UCL had like their neuroscience lab had like a stand in the in the middle of the woods. It wasn't even in, and I wandered up and I was like, um, "Do you have like an anxiety lab 
And they were like, yeah. I was like, I, I want to write a book about it. And, and they were really sort of, I think they seemed a bit taken aback and weren't ready for this. But they gave me the email address of um, Dr. Oliver Robinson, who like runs their anxiety, who, who is like the most prominent neuroscientist studying anxiety in the UK. And then oh, he just wow. gave me his email address. And, 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 he, and he said, yeah, sure, come to London and speak to me. And I, and I did, and not only that, but I like meet, met someone else when I when I uh, met uh, Dr. Rohin Francis, who's a cardiologist, but a really great sort of medical YouTuber. On the same day, he was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll meet you," and like motorcycled over to meet me in a cafe. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, people are coming to see me. I've got to write the book now." Because you do feel like then you've snuck into, you do feel like you're going to be caught out. So yeah. That was it. Fantastic. So in the process of writing that book, did, did, um, I've, I've bought it. I haven't got around to reading it yet, um, but I, I do have a copy. But uh, what, what actually sort of like, what did you find helped you the most to, over the course of that? Did you sort of settle on things yourself for yourself? Because I know everyone finds their own way with this kind of stuff. See, and yeah, and the most common question I've been asked is what helped you the most? And I want to sort of make it clear that I think it's a, this is going to sound like a, like I'm dodging the question. I'm not, but like this is the nuance of it that I want to get to. It, sure. it's, it's like saying if you put on, if it was cold outside, which is a really difficult thing to imagine at the moment. I know. Yeah, and you kind of like put on kind of gloves, a scarf, a woolly hat, ear mufflers, and a coat, and then you went out, and someone said, "What of those things was the thing that kept you warm?" The answer would come, I mean, I know it's a bad analogy because the answer would be probably, well, the coat mainly, but like, it'd be like, well, all of them actually contributed, right? And, and I think what we often do with these kind of like one, one thing cures is that we assume that the one, we kind of like try one thing. We try putting gloves on, going out, we still feel cold. We come in, take the gloves off, put a hat, a woolly hat on go out, we still feel cold, we come in, like oh, the, the hat didn't work. And actually each of them are going to be nudging towards, in, in, in kind of genetics, actually it was a, a way of thinking that Adam Rutherford, the geneticist, kind of nudged me towards, which is this idea in genetics that you don't have an anxiety, you don't have a gene for most complex traits, you don't have a, G, a one gene that you either switched on or off that makes you anxious or not anxious or whatever. But what you have is a kind of um, a polygenic liability threshold, which is like a whole bunch of genes. And each one just maybe nudges the right. probability of you being anxious forward by like 0.05% or something like that. So the answer is that like there's loads of little things, loads of tiny nudges that you can do that kind of maybe nudge you. But you can't escape being anxious. You can escape being, I think, pathologically debilitatingly anxious all the time when i haven't at the time of recording i haven't had a panic attack in i want to say like three years nine months now wow and i'd had them for over a decade every week and most days and multiple times a day so that's no small thing but yeah. like i'm still i think quite a highly strung individual right i can um I'm, I still like live in the world. I still like can look outside my window or look on the news or, yeah. you know, have 
you know, relatives who are suffering or ill and face uncertainty, uh, all of those things still exist. And I think as a human being, like you can't switch those off, but what you can do is do all these little things. So, I mean, another quick way of sort of answering what you're saying is like exercise helped to like help the tiny bit, but actually the evidence for exercise is um, the the scientific evidence for exercise is really poor. For beating right. clinical anxiety. Yeah, I was really surprised as well. I thought it was a slam dunk. It's really, so really that not. seems like one of those things that people suggest so much when they're like you're like for depression and anxiety things. Like that. I was like, oh, have you been for a run recently? Or where it's that effect, basically. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is if you look at the uh, I've read sort of several meta analyses, which are take big, big loads of uh, studies and they plonk them all together to study whether the effect holds over them. And and they the issue is. Um, and there's been some great sort of papers written on this that um, a lot of those studies are not uh, on people with clinical anxiety. They just study whether people feel less stressed after uh, going for runs or doing whatever. And, and these are not people who had clinical anxiety to begin with. They didn't have an anxiety disorder, but they'll report it as, you know, um, going for a run three times a week reduces anxiety. Well, yeah, but it's in people who never asked for that benefit to begin with because they're a sure. non-clinical, non-anxious population. And yeah, so it might make someone feel slightly less stressed in their daily life, but um, they weren't an anxiety sufferer. And secondly, you've got to think about the sampling bias in those kind of um, studies. They're voluntary studies. People know what's involved in them. People who do not enjoy exercise are unlikely to sign up for intensive eight-week trials where you have to run every day. Yeah. Like they just won't do it. So those studies are also very biased towards people who, you know, are kind of more middle class, have got more time on their hands, and tend to like exercise. So how well they translate to the general population uh, is is very tricky to say. And exercise raises cortisol, raises adrenaline, raises your output of stress hormones. So there's a whole kind of like question of what I call cortisol conscious uh, training anyway, in and how it affects anxiety and how it affects stress levels. So it's a really, really complex thing. And this is the problem is like, people, including me, don't want to hear this. They want to hear like, do this. This is the one exercise you need to do. And you're going to smash anxiety. It will rewire your brain. It's going to release endorphins. It's going to release. It's going to release endorphins. You release so what? So what are they going to release endorphins? What's an endorphin? People don't know. People don't know. You know, they they they, they know it's a neurotransmitter. Maybe it's going to release serotonin. Brilliant. What serotonin? You can get serotonin in the serotonin stinging metals. It is, more serotonin doesn't mean anything like more serotonin serotonin does different things in p- different parts of the body it, 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 it if it's in your gut it will give you diarrhea it increases <laughs> gut motility like having more serotonin is not doesn't mean anything at all and but people don't want to hear that and sure. i didn't and so i found myself getting very kind of shirty and frustrated actually with a lot of experts who seemed flaky to me because they would they would kind of go well it's complicated and I go, well, you're supposed to be I'd privately be thinking, you're a researcher. Don't say that. I've watched TED Talks. They sound very confident <laughs> in that 20 minutes. And it turns out that those people are saying things they would never say at a conference because yeah. their colleagues would laugh them off the stage. Like they're saying stuff to sell books and get grant funding. And yeah. you're like, oh, 
oh, hang on. Oh, no. So, yeah, it's a really... And, and, and so I looked at all these different things. And I, I think there are things you can learn. It's like not the end of the world. But I think it's more nuanced than that. And that kind of like approaching stuff with scepticism is actually often something that people with anxiety like me are quite bad at. You know, we're actually not very sceptical about our predictions for the future, for example. And sure. so I, I think... Um, there's something in the kind of scientific method that can also help with anxiety and worry. Can we touch briefly on the title for the book? You called it Coward. Uh, what, what led to you calling it that? Um, I thought it, to be honest, I just thought it sounded kind of like provocative. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it is, which is why I kind of wanted to touch on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, it's just, a, it, it's like, it's, it's, it's this kind of the worst word that I can think of for people who are anxious. Sure. This idea, it's it's kind of wielded a lot in political discourse mm. as we, you know, we call people cowards when they haven't done something that we want them to do. It's an ideological lever that we use to try and get people to do stuff that we want them to do that they have declined to do. And, you know, that includes, you know, being labelled a coward at times during history has yeah. has been grounds for execution. Yeah. Um, it's also quite like a gendered term, I think. Like it, 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 it's rare that you hear women being called cowards. It tends to be sort of like something that's supposed to be an attack on someone's masculinity. And I think that's interesting as well, the way that um, culturally we've gendered emotions so that for men it's sort of shameful to show fear and for women it's shameful to show anger in this kind of broad stereotypical way, we, we see those things as sort of slightly unseemly. Um, and I think that is, you know, I, I think there's few people if you kind of like speak to them off the clock at the bar um, who, who wouldn't concede that that is extremely unhelpful, unhealthy and toxic for everyone involved in that. So yeah. to, 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 to say that either um, that anyone just like shouldn't have access to like a major human emotion or shouldn't show it is just a recipe for being really not super well so um, i think it was it was just a way of kind of confronting that head on not anything sort of so um uh grand as like reclaiming the word or anything like that although i do quite i am quite fond of it because it means um an animal with a, a its tail between its legs when when you talk about like uh, heraldry, uh, a, a kind of lion coward is a lion where where the tail is kind of flicking back All and right. going underneath its legs. Uh, you know, you have like lion rampant and sure. lion courant and things like that. And a lion coward is when it's got its tail between its legs. And so it's supposed oh. to evoke a kind of animal in retreat or something like that. That's the idea. This, it's also this idea that there's that that people are kind of reverting to their kind of animal nature. And there's something lesser about them when they become a coward. And I kind of just wanted to, I, I think a kind of dog with its tail between its legs is quite a, no, I am from to me at least quite a sympathetic, yeah. <laughs> a, a, a sympathetic uh, picture rather than something that would arouse my contempt. And, and, and it's definitely this idea of cowardice as well has been something that's been a real tool of empire to kind of shame, shame people, and. Yeah. Um, I don't like that, and I, I, I just think it, I just think you can take a power out of a lot away from a lot of these words by 
by using them and not flinching from them. Fantastic. Yeah, I agree. So how has tabletop gaming helped or exacerbated uh, the anxiety you experience? You know, writing the book I'm working on at the moment, it's really struck me that behind all the games that I sort of speak to people about and play with people, I've had to you've done loads of interviews and gone out to meet people to play games. So often we've had to like delay something uh, because they'll explain, I'll get this glimpse into somebody's life and something really serious going on. You know, someone's been hospitalized. Yeah. They've been bereaved. Like, and it's it, it just really struck me. I think especially with the coming out of the pandemic and things like that, how often, <laughs> you know, seemingly sort of, tiny things like you know game nights and stuff are often taking place around kind of big human drama and i think that they provide or they've provided for me a kind of place of stability and a place of safety and a place of retreat and i think people often think of that as being of a piece with something that's infantilizing and it uh it, it, it's kind of escapist in this pejorative sense but i don't mean it like that no um, if people don't understand why anyone would benefit from escapism, I suggest, you know, have you seen your know, gestures at the world, right? Like <laughs> yeah. look outside. Yeah. Exactly. And we're kind of expected to kind of consume news and consume media mm. in this way that there's some to, to kind of consume horrifying news all the time is a kind of moral act to bear witness. And I think it's actually, it's important sometimes to rest and it's important yeah. sometimes to engage in this, you know, what's been called uh, by sociolinguists like fatic communion, this thing of like just being around other human beings and being part of a social group and working on something together, whether it's, you know, because any game is a cooperative act as well. Even if you are, even when you're playing diplomacy. It's a cooperative <laughs> act, right? Like the game is based on certain understandings of I'm this country, you're the, that country. This is, these are the rules of the game, right? That game for all its cutthroatness is a consensual cooperative exercise in very high risk theater, right? Like it's, it, and, and I, I, and I love that about games that even ones that aren't co-ops are co-ops. And it, it it's really interesting how people will, you know, try to mitigate things. You know, there's all sorts of, I just, I love the sociology and politics of dealing with a table and dealing with people's feelings if you're, you know, attacking them or whatever. And yeah. I, I, I love that so much. I, I, I love a cultures of kind of trash talk because that requires immense trust and safety. Yeah, tr absolutely. Trash talk to actually be fun and actually be pleasurable. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things, but you can only do it when you know you're safe, when you know nothing. Otherwise, you're just being a meanie, right? Otherwise, you're just like anyone can just be rude or unkind or arrogant. That isn't trash talk to me. That's just being horrible, a horrible yeah. human being. There's something really funny to the point where I'll be, have tears rolling down my eyes when someone's good at trash talk around the table. When someone, when you're playing, a game with hidden roles and so and, and someone's sneaky and then they're revealed and you were a minion of Mordred all along in Avalon. That's really funny to me. 
And these things are a great source of, been a great refuge for me. And I think every human being needs multiple refuges. And yeah. like, even if they're just neutral places, you know, even if they're, you know, what they've sometimes called in, in psychiatry, company without intimacy, this idea of having safe places where people who do not, they almost feel like, especially if, you know, people are having real like major psychiatric problems, feel even just kind of opening up to someone is threatening and they start losing their sense of self, but you can sit at a chessboard and play a game with someone and not talk. And you can have company without intimacy. Even when it's kind of like most, all games are a bit boring. You know, when people say, you know, when I describe to someone who doesn't play games what Power Grid is, and I'm like, <laughs> gather round. And who can, who can develop the most efficient energy infrastructure in Western Germany? And, and, and it's like, it's, I love that game. It's incredibly fun. But if someone said to me, it's boring, I'd say, that is, yes, that's the point. That's deeply deeply comforting to me. Do you know what isn't boring? Like the news. Do you know what isn't boring? Like being a human on this rock, in this body made out of meat that won't last forever. Like like if you think about our own existences, like they are hugely dramatic at every moment, pregnant with meaning all the time and a game is just like a way to kind of just it gives you the option to step out of that for a few hours and and i think that is a a perfectly sane and reasonable thing to want to do and in doing that i think it can replenish you so i found it hugely restorative to play games like hugely restorative um and sometimes it's been, you know, my worst times in my life, going to my weekly D&D group and getting to do something of no consequence, except yes. in the ludic space of that game, has been the most restorative and safe and nourishing thing. And I think that's kind of a beautiful thing. And it's why I'm really, really, as the years have got on, cared more and more passionately without admittedly doing anything concrete about it in terms of making sure that the game, the hobby space in the gaming world is is welcoming to er everyone who wants to play and open to as many people as possible because I just know how much it's meant to me and what an incredible space it can be for people getting together and just being allowed to be and feeling safe in a way that can kind of like, I think, spiral out into so many aspects of your life. Um, and I know it does because I've spoken to so many people for what I'm working on. And, you know, they often talk, talk so movingly about how it's allowed them to experience a different side of them that they wouldn't have known that was that then just resonates out and makes better every other part of their life. So, yeah, I, I, I think um, it's been, and I would be the first person to, you know, complicate it and go, oh, games can be, you know, terrible and have been terrible for my anxiety. If they had, I'm sort of fastidious to a point of being tedious and boring about uh, complicating things and problematizing them and kind of not making an easy narrative out of it. But um, I do feel kind of evangelical about games and the gaming space as being something that has persisted 
throughout all human history and predates the alpha, like the existence, the invention of an alphabet. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a reason that it survived and that it's yeah. been so primal to all civilization. And um, I, I, I think that's why we have to like make sure that everyone feels that they have a right to participate. Yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, I, it's it's been a, a place of refuge for myself. I mean, my, my dad is quite ill at the the start of the year. I was going up down there, in the, my parents are in the Highlands, so I was going down there and, and helping them out. And yeah, just having the sort of the Wednesday group, even if it was online to do something, was just great. Just a, a moment to like forget that that stuff's going on for a little bit and just take a moment to to breathe and just just have a bit of a moment to yourself. I, I agree entirely. Games can be. Yeah, a refuge, if you want to call it that, but in a good way, not not in a pejorative way. Just like, yeah, it's nice to take a, a step away from your life for a little bit and forget that exists and go and be Greek heroes or Dungeoneers or whatever. It's great. So um, you had, uh, before we get on to the book you've alluded to a couple of times, so I, do want to talk, I do want to talk about that. Um, you had a late-in-life diagnosis of autism, what was it like to receive that diagnosis, and do you think it's uh, affected your relationship with tabletop gaming? Yeah, well, I wouldn't have got it if I wasn't working on this book about tabletop gaming. I would never oh. have gone for it because I only so I was sort of conscious that um, in my experience of playing games, I'd encountered what felt like uh, maybe you know a, a significant number of people who are on the spectrum or were neurodivergent. And I wanted to write about that because I felt there was probably like some connection or there's something that made games uh, uh, a useful technology for people who are, you know, autistic or ADHD or any kind of like neurodivergence. So I thought, you know, maybe there's something there. So the first thing I did was I put out a call and said, you know, are you... Uh, you're neurodivergent uh, do you play games would you be willing to talk to me i'd really love to speak to some indie gamers and just like get your thoughts and what draws you to games mm-hmm. and i had some really lovely conversations and it was like super great and really interesting and i was really sort of challenged a lot of my assumptions right because people you know speaking to someone who's autistic and their favorite games are like role-playing games and you know like games like code names and things like that and hidden and i was like but these are like so very social yeah, games. social yeah. Like, d- yeah don't don't autistic people like i mean i, I think i pro- hopefully phrased it sort of slightly more delicately than this but don't like autistic people like mathematical games isn't that the stereotype right you know yeah. isn't it like about wanting to have systems and that you could slot together it's like no 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 because like in a game like say code names or a game with hidden roles and bluffing, which you might, you know, naively think would be like the worst thing. It's like, you know, you get to practice like watching someone's face and, and seeing what they, if there's any difference when someone's lying, um, seeing when someone's being sarcastic, you get to practice emotions and you get to repeat that cycle over and over again. And it's explicitly gamified and you get a clear win or loss condition yeah. No, I was joking. But what's oh, and you know, code names. Someone's making an inference. They're like going, "Here's an implication. I want you to draw out of a clue," and then you get to practice it. Was I right? Was I wrong? I get exact. I get points. 
for knowing how well did I read someone's intent? How well did I read someone's mind? This kind of like failure of empathy and modeling of a neurotypical mind is I've spoken to like a researcher in autism who talked about the different ways at a kind of like population level that neurodivergent and neurotypical people will play games like the kind of prisoner's dilemma style classic games and their ability to model what other people are going to do is different. Um, and they're like, yeah, you get to practice. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. This is making it's sense. Well, I, I felt like I should, what? So here's what I thought. I knew I was a, a nerd, right? And I'm happily a nerd. I've kind of come to like that part of myself after years of sort of trying to hide it and trying to be very kind of laddish in a way that was never convincing to anyone. That's <laughs> um, but um, I thought, but there's a difference between being a nerd and being autistic. Right, there's a difference between like liking, uh, you know, watching Star Trek, which I yeah, I did, and liking Super Mario a lot, which I didn't do. Um, and playing board games, which I, I was like, there's a difference between that and being actually autistic. But what I'll do is I'll go and get a um, an assessment, mm-hmm. um, and then I'll be able to talk about what games do connecting autistic people and neurodivergent people the inside but also i'll have very clearly gone and this is why i'm not right this is why what the difference between because otherwise people you know because very sort of frivolously i guess people might go well surely all gamers are kind of a bit autistic right you know you, you want to go yeah. and sit, sit in a shed and push around little plastic minis isn't that just autism and it's like that's one stereotype of autism and the other is well no, none of them are autistic because autistic people can't speak and 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 so the, the, these are the kind of two extremes. I thought I'd go yeah. and I'll do. I do. I did, had to fill in all these forms, and I did two full days of assessment. One with a speech and language therapist, one with a psychologist. So you know, it wasn't like a one-hour online thing. It was like a full-on. And I thought, well, this is going to, this is going to sort of sort it out. Um, and then they'll tell me no, and. And I'll, I'll get a report and I'll understand why. And I'll be able to talk about it, I think, in a way that is respectful. Because any autistic person will see, I know what it's like to go through that assessment process. I've spoken to lots of autistic people. I'm not just coming in and saying something glibly from the outside. And then they go, two weeks later, I, 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 and this was done, a sort of debrief was done over Zoom. And the psychologist, you know, they'd had their conflap they'd written their report and she said um you are the most fantastically autistic person i've ever obs- assessed <laughs> um she said i'm shocked that it hadn't been caught up until now. wow i don't know how you've got this far without someone picking it up um it must have been and i, and I just like broke down crying and then she started <laughs> then the psychologist started tearing up as well and she's like, it walked me through some of the stuff. And then, I, and then, to be honest, I was a little bit in denial. I was like, well, because here's the thing, right, Ian, here's the thing that I feel a bit ashamed of in retrospect. But actually, a lot of people, when, when I read a couple of people saying that they were autistic or had got late autist, autism diagnoses, I'd read their testimony and I'd go, well, you're just describing being a person. Very stupid. <laughs> I'd be going, that's not real. Okay, because you're just describing being a human. Everyone feels that way. So or, this isn't or, autism isn't a thing, or at least this version of it, what yeah. we used to call Asperger's, and I think that is genuinely confusing for people, that this is kind of like 
we used to call some of these things, you know, and then it's called high functioning autism and things like that. You know, yeah. clearly there is a di- there is a difference between this and you know people with autistic people with additional needs, uh, non-verbal autistic people, yeah. autistic people who've got maybe some kind of like intellectual capacity issues alongside their autism as well. Those things are kind of comorbid, but are not both autism. They just frequently yeah. happen together. I, I found it really, but I was really skeptical of like various people who said that they're autistic for a while because everything they described was what I'd been through. And I was just like, well, you're just describing what everyone feels. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and of course, now I didn't realise that their dram- dramatic irony was like, <laughs> was around the corner, laughing yeah. his head off. Because I was just like, what? This is not. This is nonsense. You're just describing being a person. Yeah, um, everyone feels like this, don't they? Yeah, it, it, exactly, exactly. And then in retrospect, it's like I, I think I think there's always a danger of over determining one's identity purely through a neurodivergent lens and so making everything. Like you know, you do get, of course, because the internet being the internet, you do get some people going, "Cool, I, I, I sure, I sure like pizza." typical autistic person and you're just like no that's just people like pe- everyone likes pizza that's that's actually that's actually nothing to do with it it's very yeah. difficult for people to go or, or you know when people are talking about adhd you know to a certain extent uh, uh procrastination is a universal human issue it's not in and of itself adhd now the difficulty is some people in communities are joking and like yeah. they'll talk about a symptom and they'll go, cool, you know, I've just um all my clothes are on the floor drobe, but all my socks are in like colour coded and uh, are hung up in, in and, and, and they're all on pegs, you know, hashtag ADHD, and they're they're joking, but they're not, and that person does have a diagnosis, and it's tricky because from the outside it can yeah. seem like frivolous or and, and these are kind of in-group things. So I I, I want to be be clear that like sometimes the way that communities talk they're not always talking for an out as, as like they're not always doing outreach when people talk amongst themselves about stuff and the same yeah, with autism within the like, community I'll, yeah exactly and sometimes I'll, I'll talk about aspects of autism and i'll kind of wave my lanyard in a way that i, I am you know I, I feel a bit guilty but sometimes i am sort of joking and sometimes i'm not you know i went to the super mario movie Super Mario Brothers movie with my six-year-old daughter and Super Mario Brothers has been my special interest since I was in in the first year of primary school genuine it's been a special my autistic special interest I was drawing Mario pictures before I could write proper words and it is now and I I like I wept multiple times during that movie and like like on one hand, that is really funny to me. I can see that it is funny that a forty-two-year-old man crying with emotion at yeah. a Super Mario Brothers movie that in no way tries to evoke those emotions. Like that's not. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be. A, it's supposed to be a light romp, an adventure. Yeah. Right? I understand that, but um, it was the first time in my life where everyone was just like psyched to see mario they'd done a good a good job of it after years of it not being good and i was there with my daughter that was very meaningful to me and i was like really badly bullied at school for like because i liked mario and then i continued to like mario as i became a teenager as it became sort of 
increasingly less appropriate for me to be wearing like a Mario tracks, like full Mario matching tracksuit with like a Mario t-shirt, a Mario wallet. Like, and I was like, you're 15 and 16 and people are starting to sneak into pubs and they're smoking. They're thinking about getting their first car. And I'm still like watching Mario cartoons and writing Mario fan fiction. And like, I hadn't aged up with anyone else. And you develop a lot of shame around those things. Sure. And to just go and enjoy something. So that, you know, it's, that is simultaneously a joke, right? Because I know it's funny. And I know Mario is like, is not a serious piece of media. But my joy of watching that film and the amount of fun I had watching it, something that I think is probably like only an all right movie, like actually, I think it's probably <laughs> as good as say, like, Trolls World Tour or something like that. It's like at that <laughs> sure. level, it's like a competent piece of like animation, but it's not. It's not yeah. amazing or transcendent, but it meant so so much to me. And I think that's the upside of autism, right? As well, that's one of the kind of bits that make people talk about it. It's like not just a disability, but a superpower. It's that like nobody who watched that movie had as good a time as me. <laughs> I, I rung every pennies worth of value out of watching that it was like a religious experience for me and i think that capacity to feel joy at, at not terribly good things right that that just make me really happy i think is one of the is one of the sort of wonderful upsides really just to be super enthusiastic about stuff and and, and i think one of the things i've had to unlearn to be happier is to not apologize for that and take it seriously yeah. I don't have to go, no, you're, I don't have to go, no, you're, I'm not like stopping people at kind of like grown up barbecues and saying, no, you're wrong. This is why Mario is actually great <laughs> art. But I also just go, look, I'm autistic and I love, I love Super Mario. And, and I think, and I think almost everyone is actually not in any way bothered by that. Like no, yeah. no one is scandalized. No one is really looking down at me. Nobody cares. And then you're like, cool, we can just enjoy stuff now. And I think actually most people, are pretty cool with that. And like look, learning that life isn't being a teenager at school, you know, you can, I think it's true, but all of the, this is true for everyone, right? To just like love your enthusiasms unapologetically and take them seriously. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so before we wrap up, uh, I'd just like to chat about the book you're working on right now. I know it's about tabletop gaming, but I don't know much else. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what it's about, what the focus is? Yeah. So I, we haven't got a title yet. I've been kind of knocking and they all either sound really cheesy or like horribly academic, like really chin strokey. And so I'm trying to find something that's good and not just dreadful. But it's about basically it's about tabletop games and how they bring people together. That's it. You know, like it's that's okay. the remit. But it's taking a kind of whistle stop tour through all of world history and all around the world in contemporary games. And like I don't write about any games that I haven't sat down and played so it's kind of like a mix of you know i started playing i'd never touched magic the gathering before i started writing the book and all right i picked that up for the first time and i think playing that game is one of the reasons i ended up getting an autism diagnosis because it's very (laughs) clear the like level of me playing that and the level of kind of like diving into that game that i went into that i knew was in me because i knew when i played netrunner which oh, I, I think is the runner. superior game. It, 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 it's, that one is like superb, and I think 
Um, the yeah, way it's being looked great. after now and the car design now is just is brilliant. I think um, is it like Nisei or who are like looking after it? Yeah, um, Project Nisei. Yeah, yeah, are just knocking it out of the park. I could not be. I think their attitude to it. I think the way that they talk to the community, but also just the car design and the car pool is exemplary it's yeah. it's really good oh. i've only played the the gateway stuff at tabletop scotland last year but they're going to be at tabletop scotland this year the project nissey folk so i will probably buy well everything because i won't be able yeah to it's really good it's been consistently <laughs> yeah. good they've been really yeah, careful about not yeah. over releasing everything's like balanced but not balanced within an inch of its life so it's still fun yeah. there's callbacks to old cards it's just done so well and i think particularly just has a big contrast with like the state of the game towards the end of its life with FFG, just going through yeah. a lot of designers, all of whom I really ad- ad- admire, actually. Like, I think everyone who kind of had to, I think that a lot of people who were put in lead design positions were just put in an impossible position as well. Yeah, Too much was released. And, and, and now it's in a brilliant place. So yeah, like I, and it's just, but it's about me, it's kind of like an impo- it's kind of like a stupidly impossible remit because I'm trying to sum up all of games and why we play games. You know what we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, it's going to sound like I I don't mean to say like I was going oh gosh well I realise now it sounds like I've gone games journalism needs to and how we write about games really needs to mature and come into itself. And what that would be is someone talking about why we play games, and then I've gone to the end and I've gone I'm writing a book on this exact <laughs> subject. And it's like I've crowned myself. I don't mean it like that. Obviously, we end up writing towards what we aspire to or like or what we see there being a lack of. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I I feel like it's going to be an interesting failure, the book. It can't possibly hit all the notes that I'm trying to hit. But I want to just like work out why why tabletop games are just persisting and... Mm-hmm. going from strength to strength i mean of course we're going through like a, a tricky like financial period but i just i also don't think that the health of the scene is can be measured in economic events that 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 is something that for a lot of the smaller publishers who i care about hugely i can understand why it's going to be really difficult for them yeah. but um i don't for a second think that, that reflects how much people are playing because it doesn't, it doesn't in terms of who's at the cons, it doesn't, like people, everyone, when I go to my local game, like nights and stuff, they're rammed and people are just, I've got loads of games, but they're not necessarily brand new games. You know, they're games that people are bringing from the last five, 10 years. Um, so yeah, I want to talk about why people play and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to like, I, I, I'm sort of made it, my publisher was quite keen that I was sort of going to explain why we should play games and the benefits, the psychological benefits and things like that. And I, there is some of that, but I also don't want to fall into that kind of classic crouched defensive posture of saying, here's why games are actually really grown up because you get that. even like this. Yeah, exactly. And you make a, you make a mistake when you do that, when Mm. you accept this kind of productivity narrative that fun isn't enough, that joy isn't enough, that companionship isn't enough, that humans, being to, I mean, because you know this, right? You've walked through aircon. They see people around the table, just like thumping the table, howling with laughter. 
and you go, you know, it, you imagine seeing that and then going, yes, but how can we justify this? <laughs> it's like completely it's like yeah. saying it, it, it's just it's so silly and it and i think it fundamentally misses the point yeah. I, I think we can talk about that but it, it almost is kind of like hand-wringing and it's almost like saying that the way that children's toys get advertised now is they're like helps with healthy development this kind of neuro nonsense that gets thrown and stuff that is meant to play into parents anxieties about their children becoming kind of like productive and it's going to help your child's brain grow. Yeah, because yeah, there's been this rash of children's brains not developing unless they get a particular uh, <laughs> Fisher-Price toy. You know, that's what yeah. we've known. Is these, there's not, it's nonsense, but it, yeah. it plays into this thing. But they never go, your child's going to have a hoot with this. It's really, you just imagine if there was a kid's toy advertised on TV and it went, it's really fun. It's really <laughs> fun. It'll make them laugh. It, it makes funny yeah. noises. They laugh. It, they never say that. They always go, "Well, help helps develop numeracy." I don't care. Like what? Who cares? So for me, it's about like getting back to basics, really, and getting back to this yeah. kind of fundamental about the magic and and, and the fundamental unpindownableness of what's happening in a game. You know, I'm going to talk about very serious stuff. I've interviewed people in, like, I interviewed a guy in Kiev who. Uh, is on the sort of night watch shooting down Russian drones uh, every night, who is also, because there's like long periods where nothing's happening, just, it's it's like, it's one of those jobs like air traffic control where there's like long periods of tedium punctuated by like five minutes of like sheer white knuckle terror. But he set up a webcam and his son and his wife are in the Netherlands. They're refugees there. Right. And they both got a copy of uh, Blood Bowl. And they play, and he's like Skavens, I think. And they're playing, they're oh. playing like big leagues in the, in the time with it set up with two separate boards. That's amazing. And in the middle of a war zone. Yeah. With like limited internet and electricity. He's using... And with like quite a lot of operational secrecy as well, right? He's yeah. using that to maintain a connection with his son. And so, yeah, it's frivolous. Um, but wonderful. It's also liter- literally a lifeline. Yeah. Like, I, I, it's also literally a lifeline. And I, I think we can be deadly serious about fun. And so that's what the game is. It's not like I'm not going to be doing this get to write this book going, and this is why it's okay to play games and we don't have to be ashamed because I, I don't feel like anyone who wants that argument from me, I'm willing to, I, I'm, you know, willing to give it to them. But I do want to like set out my stall for the incredible world of games in the hope that whether people play games or not, um, they can come to them with this kind of, greater dimension of enjoyment and appreciation whether you never play a game again but whenever you pass someone playing in the park or whatever you go oh wow and you understand a bit more about what they might be doing or whether you play games and you suddenly feel connected to this incredible lineage that just goes just shoots through every civilization in human history in a way that has blown my mind researching the book fantastic i mean i could talk to you for literally hours about this stuff tim i really could because you, you speak incredibly well on it and it's just fascinating stuff um 
We've got uh, one member of the audience left, given Tessie, who was um, the... Uh, you demoed Draco to them at Games Expo, apparently, to Ava and, to, and themselves as well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, got any questions, given Tessie, for Tim, before we wrap up? Uh, given Tessie says, just admit that Monikers was the best thing you played at UK Games Expo. Okay, so we played a game of Monikers at UK <laughs> Games Expo, eight of us, and, 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 and I... I want to. I would like to just, if I can, just touch on Monica. Sure. Because it's a game that I, for people who haven't played it, it's sometimes known as the hat game. Um, Shut up and sit down. I've done some great, a great video on it, talking about it. But it's a game where people write down words or things or phrases. They could be anything from a smooth dog to robot Robert De Niro to uh, the. Christmas, you know, it can be any anything, a phrase, a small and it goes into these this hat, and then people take them out one by one. And you start off having to do a kind of uh kind of uh, taboo style party game where you're you're allowed to describe the thing using every any words but the words on the piece sure. of paper. And you've got a minute and you've got to rush through them and do as many as possible. So you do that, and then uh and then there's a second round where they all go, any ones that people don't get, get put back into the hat and then it will sort of slowly move around your group and you're working in two teams. So eventually ones that are, were too obscure and difficult to get, everyone in the team or some members of the team will have seen before when they were trying to do the right. charade bit. So they'll, be, they'll go, oh, you're talking about this one that I've seen before that was completely stupid and they'll guess it and you'll score that one. Second round, they all go back in the hat and this time you can only use one word to allude to the thing. But now everyone's familiar with most yeah. of the things that are in there. So it's a little bit easy. That yeah. feat can be done. And then in the last round, um, I, I, I want to say you can only, you can't speak. You can mime, maybe. You're just doing, yeah, you're just doing actions, right? And um it, it creates the reason why like games I want to avoid talking about this specific game that we played that lasted about two hours um, is because it is like going on a long car journey where you just develop um, a series of in jokes, which are how you allude to the different clues. Right. Um, but what's interesting about it is you actually develop your own in group language where there'll be where someone will have, tried to talk about this one there was you know one of the pieces of paper was the difference between the atlantic and pacific oceans or something like that right it's not inherently funny but it's really difficult to explain to a group in a way that they'll get it but eventually everyone's seen that bit of paper and someone guesses it and then you've got to, you've got to go to it you've got to say about it with one word but how do you mine the difference between the atlantic and the pacific oceans as a phrase well if everyone knows it Someone will start making a sort of splashing uh, thing and flailing around. And then someone will just shout the difference between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. What's fascinating about the game is if someone's not been there from the beginning, to the casual observer, that looks like you're doing <laughs> like, the impossible. Because someone yeah. just flails and someone says the very specific phrase, the difference between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. And you go, yes. And, the, and you're like, are you, are you psychic? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you've created this, what, um, what was talked about by a, um, a, a linguist called Bernstein. Bernstein. He, he talked about um, 
open and restricted codes in different social groups. And what you've done, and he talks about open codes being very intelligible by everyone, and they tend to be used by middle-class speakers, and you can go through different contexts, and they're, you know, they're very specific, and they're very explicit, and they explain everything in very articulate, long ways. But the thing about restricted codes is they often use a lot of slang, a lot of compressed, a lot of nuance, a lot of implication, um, not very many words, a lot of technical language. Um, but in that in-group, you can express huge amounts in one or two words. And what you do in, uh, in, in that game is create an incredibly dense and incredibly rapid in-group restricted code that allows you to talk to people that I didn't know most of the people around that table. And I was able to communicate with them and understand them, you know, with like a grunt or <laughs> just like they would, or just something, you know, someone would just Fantastic. do some kind of gesture. And I would say that. And I, and, and I think that it's an astonishing game for kind of group bonding. And it's some people's idea of a complete nightmare. Because it's one of those kind of like organized humiliation games that feels like a kind of worst work away day thing. I was not up for playing it. I'll be honest. I didn't want to play it. I thought I'd hate it. I, I, I nearly did myself a mischief laughing. Um, and that's, and that that brings me back actually to your first question about UK Games Expo and why going to these cons can be useful. Yeah. Because often it actually challenges my sense of, um, what I know and what I do or don't like. Because you start, you know, playing a lot of games and doing a lot of game crit. You imagine you kind of, you can spot these things coming from a distance. Yeah. And you start to think of yourself as an expert in a way that can make you very close-minded or makes me very close-minded. And it's really good to be reminded, I actually know very little. And I go, oh, this is great. And I'm so glad I got Press Ganked into playing this. Yeah, it's always nice to be surprised by a game as a critic because you're just like, oh, I'm not going to like this. Then you play and you're like, actually, this is pretty good. It's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I love it when that happens. So you're just like, this is this is great. I'm glad I played it. Right, I think we'll have to bring that to a close, Tim, because uh, we've been chatting for a while. I, I could go on for hours with you. I really could. You're, you're a fascinating person to talk to and you know an awful lot about your subjects. I would, I, I would love to talk to you more about it. I really would. But there's only so much I can fit in the cast. Um, where can our listeners find you? Where's the best place to find you online? Well, there's two places really. Um, I you can find me on Twitter at Tim Clare Poet is my handle there, and that's where I do sort of most of my um, howling into the void. I've also got a podcast. It's uh, mainly about writing and books and stories and the people who make them. It's called Death of a Thousand Cuts, and you can just find that by uh, searching for Death of a Thousand Cuts or Tim Clare or Death of a Thousand Cuts podcast. There's loads of episodes, interviews with all sorts of writers in different genres. And as you said, there's a couple of free writing courses and me just talking about writing. So those are the two places. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Tim. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. And yeah. Uh, fascinating chat loved it loved it the bits thank you you ever so much for having me in no problem at all